This episode is brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 132. Merry Christmas, Metamorphs! Chris Lester here, ready to fill your stocking with storytelling goodness. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my writing endeavors. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. For now, though, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the conclusion of A Lightbringer Carol. If you haven't already listened to staves 1 through 3, go back to episode 129 to hear this story from the beginning. In last week's episode, Janus encountered the spirit of Solstice Present, which had taken on the form of the runner Callie Linder. Callie took Janus to an ice skating rink, where his operations officer Candace was enjoying the first day of Yule with her brother Glenn and his kids. From there, Janus followed them, unseen, as they went about the day's activities. He saw Candace's father, his body plagued by a host of problems brought on by aging. Candace had a heart-to-heart with Glenn, where she worried that their dad wouldn't be around for her children when she had them. That led them to a discussion of Candace's feelings for Janus, since it was obvious to everyone around them that she was in love with him. Janus was floored by this revelation, and as he watched Candace and her family enjoying the Yuletide together, he realized that this sort of family was something he had never had. And he wanted it. The sight of Candace's father and his illness was especially unsettling for Janus. His own father had died quickly, at a relatively young age. Candace was losing her dad slowly, and by pieces. She had never told Janus about this, but he wanted to be there for her, to help her get through this. The spirit asked Janus whether this was part of his duty as a commander. No, Janus said, as her friend. As the day came to a close, the spirit brought Janus up to the gates of a walled garden on the upper levels of the city. Janus asked the spirit how much longer Candace's father would have, but the spirit could not give him an answer. Don't ask me. I'm a live-in-the-present sort of gal, she said. But you can try asking your last guide about it if you dare. As she disappears into the sky, the spirit calls out one final word of advice to Janus. Embrace the moments. They're the only ones you get. But before Janus can spend much time thinking about that, the clock tower below them strikes midnight, and the world seems to freeze in place. And in that moment, as time itself holds its breath, Janus sees a tall, billowing phantom coming toward him out of the night. Stave 4. The Ghost of Solstice Future. Janus drew his sword and waited. Alemisil glowed bright with warning, casting a blue-white light that turned the fog nearly opaque around him. The phantom that appeared out of the mist was tall, fully a head taller than Janus himself. It wore robes of midnight blue trimmed with white, 
the vestments of a priest of Nocturna. In the old days, before the great fall, Nocturna had been the mistress of the first hell, the resting place of the righteous dead. Her servants had performed the funeral rites for all who honored the gods, even the lightbringers themselves. Nocturna was the psychopomp, the guardian of the dreamlands, and the bearer of omens, one of the three gods who could, at times, foresee the future. The future. You can try asking your last guide about it, if you dare. Right. The phantom made not a sound as it approached. It moved without gait or footsteps, gliding over the ground, its robes trailing like smoke behind it. The sword's light grew brighter as it came, but no amount of light penetrated the darkness beneath the phantom's cowl. Olimisil's subverbal intelligence pressed its simple thoughts against his mind. Power. Danger. Threat. Flee. Janus was astonished. Flee? Olimisil was always ready for a fight. Janus hadn't thought the idea of retreat was even in its vocabulary. If even Olemisil thought this phantom was outside its weight class. Janus put the sword away and bowed, waiting. The phantom came to a stop before him, its robe still fluttering in a wind that Janus himself could not feel. Great spirit, he said, in tones of deep respect. I honor you. The phantom made no reply. It did not attack him either, so Janus took this as an encouraging sign and they say I can't be diplomatic. I have already been visited by spirits of the past and present, he said. They have shown me much and taught me much. I suspect that you, great spirit, have come to show me the future. Janus looked up. Is that so? The phantom's cowl shifted, folding in on itself slightly, as if the unseen being had made one slow nod of its head. Janus nodded himself once. Very well, he said, pushing back the entirely too reasonable fear that now twisted in his stomach. I know that you are here to do me good. In its sheath behind him, Alemisil gibbered disagreement with this. And I am ready to learn what you would teach me. Lead on, great spirit. The phantom raised one arm, exposing a long-fingered and ghostly white hand. It gestured toward the path that led into the park, then waited. Taking the hint, Janus went first, the phantom following like a cold breath behind him. The air seemed to warp and twist ahead of them, images distorted as if by a misshapen lens. The shadows closed around them until Janus could barely see the next stone in the path ahead of him. He continued on. Between one step and the next, the terrain changed beneath his feet. The flagstones were replaced with the soft scuff of heavy carpet. He looked up and watched as the shadows melted away, replaced by an image of Grandmother Mirai's study. The ancient prophet sat in her familiar chair by the fire, cup of tea in hand. A lightbringer agent stood at attention before her, waiting. It was one of Janus's own protégés, Agent Kelsey Stanton, a tall, blonde woman with a strong chin and deep, serious eyes. The jagged white scar that ran diagonally across her face was familiar to him. Several other scars, including the line of vampire bites along her throat, were not. 
Her white battle dress uniform was spotless, but the tension lines in her face showed that she had been awake for far too long. She had aged noticeably from the way Janus remembered her, but whether most of it was from time or hardship, he could not tell. Kelsey bowed to Grandmother Mirai. Agent Stanton reporting is ordered, Your Eminence. Mirai nodded in acknowledgement of this. At ease, Commander. Kelsey straightened into a relaxed parade rest. So, Mirai said, how did it go, dear? Kelsey frowned slightly. We're still putting together our reports for high command. I don't have the final numbers yet. Mirai waved a hand. I can read reports just as well as high command can. I'm not that old. She smirked. Kelsey bowed her head slightly. Ma'am. Mirai sighed. Do sit down, Kelsey. You're making me tired just watching you. You've had a long night. Uncertainly, Kelsey sat down in the chair facing Mirai. Thank you, ma'am. Mirai poured her a cup of tea and passed it to her. At any rate, what I really want to know is how it felt for you. This was your first winter solstice as field commander, wasn't it? Yes, ma'am. So? Mirai gestured with her teacup. Kelsey took a sip of her own tea and leaned forward, arms braced on her knees. It was... stressful. We had incursions in six different parts of the city at one point. I've never had to juggle that many tactical situations at once before. Not outside of simulations, anyway. Janus winced. That wasn't as bad as some solstice nights he had handled, but it was on the far side of the bell curve. Mirai nodded to Kelsey. And what happened? Kelsey managed a hard smile. We beat them back, ma'am. All of them. Our losses? Thirty-four injured agents, but only two of them serious. Both stable now. Ten injured civilians that I know of, all stable. No deaths. Impressive, Mirai said. And the trophy count? We're still counting, but it's somewhere between seventy and a hundred confirmed kills. Even Mirai looked astonished at that. Slowly, she set down her teacup. My, she whispered. Kelsey bared her teeth. I guess the Winter Fae thought we'd be an easy target this year. Mariah's feline tail lashed in amusement. Well, I'm glad you disabused them of that notion. Yes, ma'am. In a more subdued tone, she added, We were trained by the best. Mariah raised her cup in a salute. So you were. The phantom passed in front of Janus, blocking the tableau. It gestured, and the shadows folded around them once more. I see, Janus said, thoughtfully. I've always been afraid of what would happen to the Order after I was gone. Wondered if the city would be safe without me. He thought back to the image of Kelsey's face. Tired, battle-scarred, but victorious. He felt a profound sense of relief a weight lifting from his shoulders. I've taught them everything I know, and they've learned it as well as I could have asked. They'll be all right, just as Candace had said they would. Candace. No sooner had he thought of her than the shadows parted again. They were back in the park, but the time had shifted. The gray, directionless light of an overcast winter day pushed its way through the fog. 
Janus became aware that the snow-covered gardens around the path were marked with stones, rectangular slabs of marble or granite, each one carefully cleared of snow. Marker stones. Not a park at all, then, but an ash yard, where the cremated remains of the deceased became food for the gardens. One dies so others may live. It was part of the old Lightbringer mantra. The ash yard was deserted today, save for one woman in a red and black riding coat. She knelt before one of the larger markers, a white marble spire surmounted by a twin cross. She held a single rose of deep crimson in her gloved hands. Candace had aged gracefully, but she had aged. Her long brown hair was thatched with gray, and worry lines had formed around her eyes, her mouth, and her brow. Janus wasn't sure, but it seemed that several years had passed between the two scenes. She certainly looked more tired than Kelsey. I came to say goodbye, she said, looking up at the marker stone. It's been long enough that... She stopped, swallowed, tried again. I loved you, she said, truly, deeply, probably madly. She breathed a laugh. I don't know why that's easier to say now, when you can't hear me. Maybe because I don't have to worry about whether it's proper anymore. Nobody cares what you say to the dead. She fell silent for a while, turning the rose this way and that between her fingertips. Remember when I used to bring you dinner? You'd get so busy before a mission, trying to get everybody else ready, and you'd just forget to eat. Like last night, Janus whispered. He came and knelt down beside her, close enough to touch her if he dared. He didn't try. He had a horrible feeling that his hand would dissolve into illusion if it touched her. Or, worse, that she would be the one to dissolve. You worked so hard to take care of everyone else, Candace said. I thought, at least I can take care of you. At least you'll let me love you that much. Her fist tightened on the rose, warping the stem. The flower's petals trembled in her grasp. I wasted the best years of my life waiting for you. The words came out ragged, anger and pain and grief twisted together. Waiting for you to see me, to give me just the slightest inkling that you could love me back. She squeezed her eyes shut. Two heavy teardrops fell and landed on her gloves. They stayed there glistening up at Janus in mute accusation. I should have known better, Candace said. You were married to the job, to your duty. I thought I could convince you to change. Idiot. Whether this last was directed at him or herself, Janus couldn't tell. After a moment, she went on. I've been seeing another man. Alan. He's... Good. Kind. Honorable to a fault, which reminds me of you. We've been together a while now, and, and last night he asked me to marry him. And I said yes. She shrugged. Too late for children, probably, but he wants me anyway. Which I'm sure will confuse my mother. With these last words, she recovered a little of the dry, ironic humor Janus had always appreciated in her. 
Anyway, we're thinking about adopting. Even if that doesn't work out, though. It's time. I've been sleeping with your ghost long enough. She laid the rose against the marker stone, then stood, brushing the snow from her legs. Goodbye, Janus. I hope, wherever you are, you finally found a place to lay down that sword and rest. Don't, you know, don't come looking for me or anything. I'll be all right without you. She removed the glove from her right hand, kissed the tips of her fingers, then pressed them against the stone. I finally understand that now. She turned then, and walked out of the ash yard without a backward glance. As Janus watched her go, he noticed the inscription on one of the stones she passed, Beloved Husband and Father. He turned and looked at his own marker. It read, Janus Asariel Starson. In his duty, he never wavered. As an epitaph, it felt rather hollow by comparison. He bowed his head and let the tears fall, silently. After a time, he felt the presence of the phantom beside him. He looked up. The faceless hood seemed to regard his marker stone thoughtfully. Great spirit, one answer I beg of you. Are these visions of what shall be, or only of what might be? The cowl turned toward him fractionally, a questioning tilt of the head. A man can change his ways if he chooses. His voice shook a little under that pitiless, faceless being, but he pressed on. Already I can assure you I am not the man I was three nights ago. I was out of balance like my father before me. I see it now. Does that count for nothing? Again, the long, pale hand appeared from beneath the robes and pointed at the inscription on the white marble. But Janus saw a faint trembling in its fingers. No! Janus sobbed, and he didn't care one damn about his composure anymore. Don't tell me this can't be changed. My father's ghost moved heaven and earth to give me this chance. Don't, don't tell me it was for nothing. Give me a word, a sign, anything. Show me I can wipe away this stone. Somewhere, ominously, a clock tower began to toll the hour. In desperation, and on an impulse that would have been unthinkable three nights before, he reached out and clutched at the phantom's robes in supplication. There was a sudden rush of wind, and the robes enveloped him. They pressed against his face, his arms, his legs, driving him flat onto his back on the cold, snowy ground. He thrashed this way and that, gasping for air. Until, suddenly, the ground grew soft and warm, and the robes atop him became bedsheets, and the tower bells became the low, insistent beeps of the alarm clock. Stave 5. The End of It Janus sat up, blinking. The light of a bright, clear winter's morning slanted in through the window. Alemisil sat quiescent on its stand beside his bedside table. Janus took the sword in hand, opening his senses for any warning it might choose to give him. The blade responded to his touch with quiet, non-verbal interest like a dog pricking its ears at its master's voice, watchful but unconcerned. 
he put it back on the stand and looked at the clock, which was still beeping with his usual nine o'clock alarm. After a moment, he turned it off. He tried the intercom. Janus to Hops. Report. Kyle's voice came back a few seconds later. Hops here. Nothing to report. Morning, boss. Nothing to report? Janus had been out of contact with his people for three days, and there was nothing to report? He'd been expecting some temporal distortion from his travels, but... Kyle, humor me a moment. How long do our internal sensors show that I've been in my quarters? To his credit, Kyle did not balk at the odd question. Give me a second to pull the records up. Looks like you went in at about five o'clock yesterday afternoon, so that would be sixteen hours, give or take. Yesterday afternoon? It's only the twenty-second? Yep. Happy first day of Yule, boss. Thank you, Janus said, absently. All in one night. After a moment, the implications of this sank in. He clenched a fist and shook it, grinning. Yes! They did it all in one night! Pardon, sir? Kyle asked. Janus realized what this must have sounded like over the calm. It's all right, Kyle. I've just had a remarkably positive encounter with a unique set of spiritual entities. We were breached? Kyle said, alarmed. Again? And I didn't catch it? I don't think anyone could have caught this, Janus said. The effect came through a lemisil, not from outside. But I went... somewhere. Check the spatial distortion sensors around my quarters, between the hours of midnight and about 2 a.m. On it. While Janus waited, he rose, stretched, and went to his closet to dress. He grimaced at the long line of suits and uniforms. Not appropriate for the occasion. He dug around in the back for a while and came up with a pair of work jeans and a red sweater that his mother had bought for him when he was 18 and on his way to the mountains for training camp. Luckily, it still fit, though it was a little tight across the chest. An extra 10 kilos of muscle would do that. Kyle's voice came back on the intercom. You were right, boss. There was a disturbance, starting right around midnight and continuing until dawn. Damned subtle work, though. It was real quiet, never anything big enough to set off the alarms. Whoever did this had major finesse. Janus smirked. Somehow, I'm not surprised. Thank you, Kyle. How'd the rest of the night turn out? Pretty quiet for a solstice. I guess somebody decided to give us a break this year. Count our blessings, huh? Oh, believe me, I intend to, Janus murmured. Then, carry on, Kyle. I'm still off duty until nightfall, so I'm heading off campus. Call my mobile if you need anything. Uh, sure, boss, Kyle said, sounding puzzled but not displeased. It's a beautiful day out there. I hope you enjoy it. Janus just grinned. It took him two stops to ask for directions, but at last he found the little park in Valley South Borough with the ice skating rink. As he eased his skimmer into a nearby parking space, Janus was momentarily afraid he might have missed them. But no, there was the bright red of Candace's riding coat, spinning and looping around the ice. After another moment, he spotted Glenn, who had apparently taken custody of the kids for a while so Candace could practice her skills, or maybe just show off for her niece and nephew. There was, thank heavens, a booth renting out skates in one corner of the park. 
They even had a pair in Janus's size. He adjusted his new scarf around his neck, wrapping it a little tighter against the cold, then went to the benches at the edge of the ice to put on the skates. He was halfway through lacing up the second skate when Candace turned around and spotted him from halfway across the rink. A half-second of surprise, and then a radiant joy bloomed across her face. Janus could have sworn the temperature rose ten degrees in that moment. She came to him as fast as the crowds would permit, flashing that broad, brilliant smile. For him. Just for him. She skidded artfully to a stop, making a little spray of ice shavings as she did so. Well, hello there, she said. I guess you changed your mind. Got tired of being stuck in that little room? For a moment, he felt the old awkwardness trying to take over, trying to push him back into stiff, safe formality, back into the shell where he took no risks and could be hurt by no one. He pushed it aside. Actually, my quarters are fine. He smiled. Seeing her like this, relaxed and happy, made it easy for him. I just wanted to see you. There was a certain look that Janus had noticed on people when they were confronted with unexpected honesty. It signaled a kind of uneasy self-awareness, the emotional equivalent of seeing someone naked. That look flashed across Candace's face for an instant, before she masked it with her usual dry humor. Hey, you see me all the time at work. I don't change that much when I'm out of uniform. Yes, you do, Janus said, equably. He nodded to the ice. I was watching you out there with the kids. You looked so... free. I'm the one who doesn't know how to change out of uniform. He finished lacing the second skate and rose to his feet. And I think that needs to change. Candace's smile slipped again, but her eyes were bright and glistening as she met his gaze. She came off the ice and approached him, searching his face for... Janus wasn't sure what... At last, she reached out and touched the ends of the scarf she had made for him. When the smile came back, it was not dry or ironic, but something warm and tender and hopeful. This looks like a good start to me, she said. I hope so. Janus swallowed the lump that had suddenly appeared in his throat. I should warn you, I was never very good at this. Not much practice. Candace's eyes twinkled. Yes, she'd caught the layers of meaning in that confession. I know. I'll make mistakes, he warned her. There's a chance we'll both get hurt. I don't want to hurt you, but... She held a finger to his lips, and he fell silent. It's okay, she said. Sometimes you've got to fall down a few times before you get things right. She opened her hand to him in invitation. Janus took it. Mirai Hindana stepped back from the polished obsidian of the scrying mirror, letting the enchantment fade. She put her hands on her hips and nodded in satisfaction. Well, those two seem to be off to a good start. Finally. Her companion crossed his long, lean arms, and a chuckle came from the darkness inside the blue and white robes. What a splendid bit of manipulation, Lady Starchild. Quite worthy of your father, I must say. The old fox would have been proud. I didn't need Cameloth to teach me how to manipulate people for their own good, 
Mirai said dryly. I learned that from Sister Raven. Of that I've no doubt, said Lady Nocturna, who was just entering the scrying room as they spoke. The fallen goddess was dressed in a simple white blouse and midnight blue slacks, which she brushed at as she walked, trying to remove the lingering traces of chalk dust. She's a strong-willed old soul to have tarried so long on this side of the veil. Mariah smiled at her. Did you see her safely home, then? Aye, as far as I can tell, stuck on this side. That was as harsh a jibe as Nocturna would ever make at Mariah for causing their exile. Mariah opened her hands in ambiguous acknowledgment. She could not be sorry for her decision, but Nocturna had earned the right to put the occasional dig in. Thank you for your help, Mariah said sincerely. I had a feeling her perspective would be instructive for young Janus. Just be glad we had the sword to use as a focus, Nocturna said. She's thirteen centuries gone. I don't think I could have called her back across without it. It seems a lamisil was a double blessing then. Mariah turned halfway back to her other companion, letting her gaze encompass them both. Do you think Asariel will be able to rest now? I regret that we couldn't do more to help him. That will depend on what Janus makes of his choices, the hooded figure said. Asariel invested all his hopes in the boy. Nocturna nodded agreement. If Janus can make a good show of starting down another path, then at some point, in five or ten years perhaps, his grip on the sword should weaken, and he can be led across. Assuming, of course, that we are all still here by then, the hooded figure said brightly, which, given the recent portents, is by no means certain. Right. Mirai seemed to rouse herself, taking a deep breath and letting it out again. So much for family matters. On to the next crisis. Nocturna gestured to her. After you, Lady Starchild. Mirai headed back toward the heart of the Citadel, to summon their allies for the much more serious work ahead of them. Behind her, Nocturna turned to their companion. Klepnos, can you please get out of my robes now? That's rather disconcerting. The trickster god threw back his hood and grinned at her. Sorry, milady. I'm afraid I've found it rather addictive. I do so love getting into the spirit of the season. The End And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find A Lightbringer Carol in the Urban Legends Story Collection, available now on Amazon. It's also available as a standalone ebook through both the Kindle Store and Smashwords. The links will be in the show notes. Charles Dickens said, I write with great care and pains, being passionately fond of my art, and thinking it worth my trouble and persevere, and work hard. So, let's see how hard I've been working this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,751 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 688 words per hour. I also spent 10 hours working on publishing and audio production, using the Pomodoro Technique. As of Friday night, I have gone 180 days without breaking my chain. 
This week, I finally got back into writing Operation Ibex. I had been having some trouble with motivation on this one, and this week I realized why. It had gotten too predictable. When I started writing this story, I was doing lots of expansion on the content of the audio drama, but once I got into the meat of the plot, I found that I was just... bored. So, I went off script. I started throwing problems at my protagonist. And then, when he found his way out of those problems, I gave him worse problems. And lo and behold, the story was fun again. At this point, I have no idea how Liam is going to get out of the mess he's in, and I really want to keep writing so I can find out. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2011 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.